Welcome back to another episode of Our Interesting Times. It's my pleasure to have Dr. E. Michael Jones back on the show. Uh, he's here to discuss a couple articles that he has in the May edition of Culture Wars, uh, Free Speech Under Assaulted Gab and Pro-Life Requiem. Um, of course, Dr. Jones is the editor of Culture Wars magazine and the author of many books, including Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality, and of course, the recently released second edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit comes in three volumes, right? Yes, three volumes, 1,800 pages altogether, 600 pages of new material over the first edition. Yeah, mine, uh, my, my copy just arrived two days ago. Good. Good. Days. I'm glad the mail is delivering our copy. <laughs> so, you never know. So the cancer, cancer culture hasn't spread to the United States Postal Service. At least not, no. Not in no. this case. <laughs> no. Uh, so uh, the second edition, um, uh, I guess, um, why did you decide to, to release a, uh, an expanded version? Just new material uh, uh, as yeah. you reflect upon 10 years, 10, 12 years after it was published? Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, I was uh, it was an act of daring on my part to publish it uh, 12 years ago. Uh, and over this period of time, uh, it continued to provide the paradigm or the lens through which we can view what's happening in our culture, because no, everyone refuses to talk about this topic. And without this topic, you can't understand things. So recently, I mean, as of yesterday, or the day before, Micah, Hitz, Micah Hickson just published an article in uh, LifeSite News. And it, it was a reporter gets $20,000 a month to host uh, parties during Vatican II. Uh, well, that's, that's true. Uh, he, she's talking about Robert Blair Kaiser, who was the uh, time, uh, the Vatican correspondent for Time magazine during the early 60s. Uh, and then uh, uh, her, Micah said it was based on an article by Robert Moynihan. And Moynihan said he interviewed uh, Robert Blair Kaiser in Rome and they had a long, serious conversation. And uh, uh, but I'm not going to talk about the breakup of his marriage. Uh, if you want to read that, you read to read uh, Clerical Error, which is his memoir. Well, why aren't you talking about the breakup of his marriage? Is, is this something that the, the faint-hearted among Catholic subscribers cannot bear to hear? Uh, I think there's a deeper reason. I think because if you're going to talk about the breakup of Robert Blair Kaiser's marriage, you have to talk about Malachi Martin, because Malachi Martin was the man who seduced his wife and persuaded her to run off with him. Uh, so what was Malachi Martin doing at Vatican II? Well, if you had read the book 12 years ago, you'd know that he was a double agent that had been employed by the um, uh, American Jewish Committee and B'nai B'rith to change the church's teaching on who killed Christ, to eliminate the Jews from that equation. Well, so now I think I understand why you don't want to talk about his marriage. But what you're seeing here is this elaborate construction of a false narrative, the false narrative being the false narrative surrounding Vatican II. And now it's become a staple of a certain segment of the church population. Uh, one of the main participants in this is Archbishop Vigano, a man whose witness I respect and uh, his expertise 
about McCarrick and what the homosexual mafia that he gained when he was nuncio to the United States of America is certainly important information, but that doesn't mean you understand what happened at Vatican II, because to do that, you have to do research and, and you have to dig into a story that no one wants to, wants to tell, because no one wants to tell the story, uh, talk about the Jews, because if you talk about the Jews, you get punished. Uh, it's that simple. So that Vigano is saying, yes, uh, Vatican II got hijacked. It was the Freemasons who did it. Well, show me the evidence. I mean, I've done a little research into this topic. I didn't see any evidence of Freemasonry, but I saw a lot of evidence of one, uh, the CIA uh, and Time Life. This is the book that Dave Wemhoff wrote. Uh, Time Life and the CIA were... Uh, basically overlapping circles if you wanted to do a Venn diagram. And at the heart of that overlapping circle was uh, uh, C.D. Jackson, who was an employee simultaneously of the CIA and of Time Life. So Time Life was basically the propaganda ministry for the United States of America and the, the, uh, uh, the external version of the CIA. Now, Okay, we talked about this. Uh, we talked about the the Jewish revolutionary spirit. You can't understand what went on there unless you understand, have a category like the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And I'm going to extrapolate from that. I'm saying you can't understand history unless you have that concept. Because history is the conflict between Logos and anti-Logos. And I first used the word Logos in the book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, because the only way I could describe the Jews. No, they won't define themselves. Is it an ethnic group? Is it a religion? This is a shell game they play to keep you baffled and mystified. So you have to go in and you say, no, no, it's, it's, uh, what, is, what, is, what is their identity? Their identity is rejection of Logos. The Logos incarnate was Jesus Christ. He came... Uh, to offer salvation first to the God's chosen people, and they rejected him. Not only did they reject him, they uh, murdered him. And uh, when you destroy, when you rebel against the Logos, you're rebelling against the order ordained by God. And when you do that, you become a revolutionary. And that has been their identity ever since, all the way up to the present day. So that's why I'm saying you can't understand human history unless you factor this important group of people into the equation. So even today, once again, once again, we have to ignore what's happening in uh, Israel and Gaza and the West Bank. And uh, just to, and, and to help you ignore what's going on there, the Israelis um, blew up the Associated Press building just to help us along. They know we have more important things to think about, uh, and uh, they blew up the building. So here we are back about this topic that no one can seem to bring themselves to talk about. That's why the book is important, and uh, all of the information and all of the material I've done on that topic since then, over the past 12 years, has only vindicated my feeling that this is a, con a concept of reality and that you can't understand reality uh, unless you have this as part of your toolkit. Yes, the, it is interesting because you, you, you do hear talk about Freemasonry uh, and it being a force. And I do think, at least at this point, it's an over-mystification of it because I think you gave the, um, 
the old story of uh, of, uh, of Philip Egalite when he says that Freemasonry is the candle uh, and the sun's the revolution. When the sun comes, you don't need the candle anymore. Right. The, the world itself, and I think you you talk about this in the Jewish. I think it's in Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. How by the the twentieth century, the world had become more or less one big Masonic lodge, and, and as a revolutionary tool, it was now outmoded. Uh, and so, while it's not irrelevant, it's it's it is a often an over mystification, therefore a misdirection, when you uh, uh, get people to ignore, say, actual you know organizations of people that are that do exist now or, and are around us. And one would be sort right. of Jewish power, where Archbishop Vergano right. doesn't want to address that topic, because if you do that uh, in, current, in, in today's current climate and the, the media climate, you will be uh, labeled an anti-Semite, and that's you know the worst thing to be, be in, in this day and age. That's right. Yeah. So the, the people choose obsolete revolutionary movements. So you're right. Yes, I did have a whole chapter on Freemasonry in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And if you're talking about... <clears throat> Uh, the 18th century, it was the cutting edge of revolutionary fervor in the 18th century. Uh, and I go into great detail about who, who did it and why they did it and where they did it. So, you know, in South America in 18th century, you bet you betcha. Mm -hmm. Freemasonry was very important. But to say it's in the Vatican Council important there, well, show me the evidence because I, I haven't found it yet. Why do we need uh, Why do we need uh, Freemasons when we have the CIA? Yeah, but yeah, that isn't that isn't something like the CIA and Americanism a manifestation of Freemasonry implemented in the world? Well, yeah, I mean, you could. It's certainly uh, the the early CIA uh, uh, recruited from Yale mm -hmm. in general and Skull and Bones in particular. Mm -hmm. And Skull and Bones is a secret society that was yeah yeah a lot like the Freemasons. The whole the whole History of the 18th century is the rise of all these secret societies, mm -hmm. and uh, because you couldn't, they were all illegal, and they were all determined to overthrow throne and altar, uh, namely the Catholic Church, and the government uh, of England had basically weaponized the Masonic lodges beginning in 1721, and they used them very successfully to overthrow the Bourbon monarchy in France. So, yeah, it was relevant then, but you, you, again, you gave the key statement there. It was Philippe Egalité, who was the cousin of the king, who said it's it's obsolete, you know, and that's more or less what has happened. It's become obsolete and it's been replaced by other more current revolutionary movements. But I'm saying that the constant in history is the Jewish revolutionary spirit, because, and I try to trace that from one epoch to another. Yeah, and at the very least, uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit, uh, I guess, uh, infected the lodges, um, and you see that in the French Revolution, and of course, behind these these revolutions, one of the prime uh, groups that benefited from it, uh, of course, were, were Jews. And one thing would right. be like Jewish emancipation and the, right. the removal of restriction laws, which protected Christian society from Jewish influence. Good example of that sort of idea, sort of permeating us and sort of. Um, Embracing the spirit is now. If anyone just suggested there should be any restriction or increased suspicion uh, regarding Jews and having positions of government or cultural power, that's considered retrograde, racist, anti-Semitic, and hateful. Uh, uh, whereas um, in the 19, before the French Revolution, that would have been considered just practical because this was an alien group, a nation within a nation that didn't uh, hold to the same values. Of course, this goes back to the whole idea of. Of society, you know, the whole idea of, of separation, church and state. What what constitutes a political, 
you know, society, whereas you had confessional states. Now we so suppose you have liberal states, uh, you know, that uh, such an such an idea of a country or a society like that, people have no um, people think like you're you're again you're retrograde if you suggest that something should even exist today. So again, an example of, again everyone embracing this Freemasonic idea of um, indifferentism, religious right. tolerance, and these things. It's it's, right. it's the power well, of ideas. Yeah. The idea, I mean, really retrograde idea is questioning whether Jews can be citizens. Can mm. Jews be citizens? Well, that's that's an awful thing to say. Well, before you get your knickers in a twist here, let's talk about Jonathan Pollard. <laughs> yes. Okay, now, he, yes. I mean, as, as Joe Sobern used to say, dual loyalty would be an improvement here. <laughs> yes. uh, we have the, 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 the spectacle of uh, Donald Trump once again bending over backwards to placate the Jews and uh, pardoning Jonathan Pollard against the entire united opinion of the entire intelligence community and military. Uh, and uh, he immediately gets on a plane, uh, Sheldon Adelson's plane, okay, and he flies to Israel. And who's there to w welcome him? Standing at the bottom of the steps is none other than Benjamin Netanyahu. That's right, your former neighbor, right? My yeah, we went to high school <laughs> a mile apart, uh, and it wasn't in Tel Aviv. Uh, so there's Benjamin Netanyahu welcoming the greatest traitor in American history. Okay, and if that isn't damning enough, you know why are we giving this guy all this money? Why are we giving Israel all this money? when they're supporting the biggest trader in, 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 in uh, American history. <coughs> and uh, don't you think that's uh, a statement of the nation of Israel when the prime minister meets this guy? Isn't that, uh, aren't you sending us a message here? And then the first thing that <coughs> Pollard does, well, not the first thing, but one of the early things he does, he gives a speech in which he says, yeah, uh, every Jew should have loyalty to Israel and no other country. And Biden's an anti-Semite, by the way. Now, mm -hmm. how, how do you process that? Do you pretend that it just didn't happen? I mean, I've, I've talked to people like uh, Charles Moskowitz, you know, kind of conservative Jew, and they'll immediately say, well, he's not really a Jew. Well, wait a minute, <laughs> Charles, yes. you're not the Pope here. You don't get to determine who's a Jew. I think he is a Jew. When, when you're when you're met on the tarmac by Benjamin Netanyahu, it sounds like not only are you a Jew, you're an important Jew. Yes. Yeah. And again, that, that does raise the question. I mean, I, such people like Phil Geraldi have written articles like this, talking, questioning the loyalty, at least the prudence of appointing, you know, uh, Jews or, or, you know, or pronounce you know, uh, Zionists to these high level governmental positions when just the. the the nature of Zionism itself brings brings suspicion on every every uh, Jew uh, because of this dual loyalty issue, this uh, this sort of this uh, cosmopolitan or you know this. But the whole idea of having a loyalty to Zionism that goes back to the founding of it. You know, uh, well, I mean, Jew, Jews uh, Jews uh, I cannot be citizens. I mean, I I, I went I ran into this in St. Louis. Where uh, so the Jew, uh, you know, I'm doing the whole battle on the statue. Uh, a Jew calls up a friend of mine, my contact there, and says, this Rabbi Susan Talva, she, nobody, nobody, no Jew takes her seriously. So I told him, well, call him back and say, let's issue a statement. We citizens of St. Louis are united in support of our statue. Well, he wouldn't do that because 
that would mean criticizing a fellow Jew, and he's not going to do that. Now, the exception to that was when the ADL overstepped its uh, non-existent sense of boundary and uh, criticized Tucker Carlson, and then 1,500 rabbis come back and they attack the ADL. Well, that's an extreme case, okay? Then the ADL went on to attack, no, it wasn't the ADL, it was some other group, attacked Sean Hannity as an anti-Semite. <laughs> Sean Hannity? And I've watched him interview Benjamin Netanyahu. It was disgusting, the kind of groveling that, that was uh, supposed to be some type of news uh, interview. No, mm -hmm. what's that? So it's, it's a serious issue, but obviously it's one that we cannot talk about, cannot even entertain that idea. And it's a new idea. It was basically Napoleon who emancipated the Jews. And uh, it was basically, the question was, can you uh, be loyal to France? Well, they said, of course we can. Jusqu'à la mort, up unto death, they would say. And then within, by, by the time uh, Napoleon's coming back from Yeni, stops in Strasbourg, and they're already complaining that the Jews are exploiting their newfound role of citizenship by exploiting fellow, fellow Frenchmen. So, you know, that's part of the discussion that should be taken. Well, actually, we're, we're doing it. So congratulations to us for, for <laughs> actually doing this discussion. Yeah, I just read, uh, I was reading, some, I think it's the governor of the New York Fed, uh, is a former head of the Israeli Central Bank, if I have that right? It may be, your guess is, you should know. I don't, I don't know. I don't well, know I was that. thinking, well, how does that work? <laughs> so, but that's this, sort of this transnational cosmopolitan nature is part of the problem. And of course, this is why uh, uh, Jews have played such, played such a central role in fighting, you know, sort of, you know, uh, populist nationalism. Right. That's yeah. exactly yeah. the point. That's right. Yes. Uh, that's uh, so. So now, now we have the uh, again with after this uproar in in Palestine, uh, we have the illustrious senator from the state of Indiana, Todd Young, sending me an email. I'm flattered by your attention, Senator. But what do you tell me? You stand with Israel. Oh, well, thanks for telling me. I've got a question for you. Do you represent the Israel lobby or do you represent the people of Indiana? And don't tell me you can do both because you can't. It's one or the other. Yeah, yeah. And we see this strange, almost inexplicable, you know, uh, uh, loyalty oaths that are effectively required of our politicians, whether it's in Indiana or Texas or, or Florida or Georgia. You just you see these things. And you kind of you broach this topic in, in the article on Gab and uh, right. Andrew Torba, and you want to get into that? Just kind of brings into the, into the, brings this issue up sure. too. Yeah, it does because that is just one weird story. Uh, you know, you've got you've got uh, 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 an attack on Gab launched by Mother Jones, um, and I'm I'm the center of this attack, believe it or not. Okay, so yeah, Mother Jones contacts me. Would you make a comment? No, I'm not going to talk to you. I know what's going on here. So the uh, next day, I think uh, Andrew Torba got the same email. He comes out and doubles down and, uh, you know, says, no, I'm not going to go along with it, blah, blah, blah. The article comes out. And as I said, I'm the centerpiece of this article. So there is uh, they didn't get any information. This is supposed to be journalism. The only information they got was from criminals who hacked the website. 
So I guess this is a new low in journalism, consorting with criminal, uh, engaging in criminal behavior. But the, the smoking gun here is Andrew Torba sending a message, uh, uh, Roosh and uh, Andrew Torba in a private email exchange saying, uh, gee, I like the right, I like the books of E. Michael Jones, says Roosh. He said they helped me uh, convert from a pickup artist. And then Andrew Torba says, yeah, I liked uh, Libido Dominanti. It was a great book. Well, this is a smoking gun. I mean, <laughs> is this the best you can do, fellas? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered that you're taking me so seriously here. But what am I, typhoid Mary? You know, I'm a, I'm a biological weapon that can contaminate people simply by proximity. This is ludicrous. This is ludicrous. And the whole thing is it blew up in their face anyway. And didn't have, they all made fools out of themselves. I, su I assume there was a time when Mother Jones did serious journalism, but those days are long gone. And this type of stuff is just ridiculous. Okay, so, okay, now, we're, we're, the, 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 okay, we tried that ploy. The people who are against Gab are using Mother Jones. That flops. So they attack uh, another hack on Gab. Okay, so these these criminals, you know, if they can't get you with journalism, they'll get you with uh, criminal activity. Uh, that fails, and so the next day, here the governor of Texas holds a press conference and says, "Gab isn't welcome in the state of Texas because it contradicts Texas values." Who knew that Texas had values? And so the the irony here is that uh, a week before the go governor Abbott said. We welcome anyone who got deplatformed. <laughs> wait a minute, what's going on here? So now, uh, oh, wait a minute, I, I get it now. The picture he issues, there he is with some Jewish congressman and there's an Israeli flag flying in the background. So I think uh, it, it, the big question is, what does the left-wing magazine, uh, Mother Jones, have to do with the most conservative state, the Republican governor of the most conservative state of Texas? Well, it's it's the Jews. Yeah, the common denominator. Yeah, that's the common denominator. Okay, and then you take it one step further, and uh, Andrew is trying to do damage control, so he appears on Steve Bannon's show, and all can Steve Bannon can say is, "Are, are you an anti-Semite?" And then again, you know, second question: Are you sure you're not an anti-Semite? Well, wait a minute. Let's look into Steve Bannon. Where did he get his start? Oh, he, he started off working for Goldman Sachs. Oh, and then he started working for Hollywood. Oh, and then he started creating these pseudo faux nationalist movements, except that uh, you go there and you convince them that, you yeah, we'll support you if you're a nationalist, as long as you support Israel. So you're not a nationalist group after all, if that's what you're doing. So again, here you've got three completely separate stories and one common denominator, and it's Jewish control, Jewish control of the discourse. Yeah, and the uh, uh, Andrew, I guess Andrew Torber didn't back down. Uh, he seems to be somewhat aware, at least his final comments, of what you know, the forces that are opposing him. It's funny because Gab only exists because of efforts of uh, the cancel culture, which is largely Jewish. Uh, Right. I guess at at, uh, at Twitter and also at, uh, you know at YouTube and these other platforms, uh, all the banning that's going on there. So Gab was created, I think, a few years ago as a 
as an alternative platform. And so Gab only exists because of the censorship. Now they're trying That's to right. go, after, go after Gab. And you know, I would say that you know, Gab, to the extent that it is anti-Semitic, of course, it's very subjective, right? The idea of anti-Semitism, what it is, um, is that if you have a platform where you respect free speech and free debate, by nature, it's going to be anti-Semitic how they understand it, because there's going to be criticism of Jews from time to time. So let me, let me again, uh, advice to Andrew and anyone else in this situation. As soon as the charges of anti-Semitism is leveled against you, you ignore the charge because it is completely meaningless. It is a meaningless term. If you want the gold standard of um, definitions, the International Holocaust Review, whatever association, says uh, anti-Semitism is a certain perception. Well, I, what can I do about a certain perception? I mean, you can, you can take LSD and have a certain perception, and I can't uh, argue with the, your perception, but I can't I guarantee you it doesn't correspond to reality. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, first, the po first point is you have to completely uh, ignore the charge, and you say, um, is, it, is it a sin to criticize Jews? Is it illegal? To criticize Jews? Now, I know in some countries it is, okay? It's not illegal here. Now, if you can answer those two questions, I'll, con I'll continue to talk to you. But I'm not going to talk about this ridiculous charge that has no meaning. It's got no meaning. You can't discuss it. Well, which is you know, the same way that Israel doesn't have any declared borders, anti-Semitism doesn't have any clear definition. That's right. And that's <laughs> you know. to their advantage, isn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. Um, but again, it's one, it's the irony of him, of the governor coming out, you know, and trying to, uh, I guess saying Gab doesn't, uh, isn't consistent with Texas values. Just a week prior, he was going against cancel culture, but cancel culture itself is largely a Jewish effort. Um, that's right. You know, so you can't, you can't go against it unless you understand who is the source of it. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of that, the, the year before the COVID arrived was, the ADL uh, purging the internet of anyone they didn't like. You know, this is this is what you we have to we have to talk about this because it, because you cannot get anywhere unless you talk about it. Yeah, and, you know the whole uh, uh, I guess uh, uh, kerfuffle or conflict with with Tucker Carlson is of course he did it over the idea of replacement um, immigration uh, and the whole idea of, of replacement theory, which was. Uh, I guess dismissed as a uh, anti-Semitic canard. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a new anti-Semitic canard for you. Okay, it's they. Yes. They. Okay, and I'm talking about the Van Morrison did a, a uh, did a recording, and the title of his record was "They Control the Media." Yeah. Well, they is a, 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 a an anti-Semitic canard. This is this this list of words is growing. Well, maybe he was referring to like a transgendered person, and, and he didn't, well, he didn't want to—he didn't want to mispronoun him or something. <laughs> well, the they. Yeah, they, uh, so, yeah, they control the media. Well, that's the example again of the the guilty flee when none pursueth, right? That's right. <laughs> I mean, that's right. So, so what did how, what did what was uh, Sean Hannity's offense? Speaking of that, yeah, that's right. There was was it to uh, to, um, to that uh, the uh, representative, the senator from. New Hampshire. What's his name? Bernie. Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders. Yeah, you referred to him as Bolshevik Bernie. 
well, this was anti-Semitic. Well, wait a minute, fellas. Are you telling us now that Bolshevism was a Jewish political movement? Is that what you're saying here? <laughs> well, I guess they, 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 they know they're Winston Churchill. <laughs> Thanks for corroborating that uh, because we get in trouble when we yeah. say things like that. Yeah, I don't want to blame Bolshevism on on, uh, on organized Jewry. <laughs> Admit that part of it. Yeah, it, and it, of course, with, with Tucker Carlson, I think what happened was the ADL had to take a loss on that because, um, well, the guy who heads the ADL, <clears throat> I guess. Um, Greenblatt. Uh, yeah, Jeff Greenblatt. He overstood it. He, he, he um, was too overt, and uh, they work better you know, from just behind the scenes, behind the scenes and sort of. And their cancel culture, or, or, or um, uh, you know, but not what, what's it called? Uh, dynamic silence was their right. traditional that's the, first, that's the first and most effective way. Yeah, when they come out in the open like that, like they did, and well, funny thing is because Tucker Carlson treated it like a voting issue, civic nationalist issue, and they immediately took it as an anti-Semitic thing. Um, because um, well, one thing is the if you do a little research with replacement migration and weaponized migration and sort of the, the uh, this goes to that Jewish revolutionary spirit that you're talking about is is the, uh, the, the history of uh, Jewish agitation not only in changing U.S. immigration laws you know like the Hart Seller Emanuel Seller 40 year effort to change immigration laws to purposely change the nation's demographics to change its politics which is very subversive and very disruptive uh, uh, especially at a high rate. Their role in also in the migration uh, crisis in Europe, and so Tucker, although didn't directly uh, address that issue, the Jewish role in it, they know they're behind it, and any exposure right. hurts them. Yeah. 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 Well, what about the mig migration crisis in America? Mm -hmm. It was known as uh, the Black Migration up from the South. Who was the architect of that? Well, it was Louis Worth, a Jew who was a sociologist at the uh, University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. who had a ferocious animus against the Catholic Church and used black migration to place, basically break up uh, black, uh, black, break up uh, Catholic uh, enclaves in all the big cities in, in uh, north and east of uh, the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, of course, you write about that in Slaughter of Cities and also uh, more detailed in Philadelphia in your John Cardinal Kroll uh, uh, biography. Right, and, yes. And that, those two books are very important, understanding the... Um, uh, the role of ethnic politics in some of these things. And you, you talk about this in your article on uh, a pro-life requiem, because this factors into it too, because you talk about Hesburgh and this guy, Joe Scheidler. And a, again, another example of a pro-life activist not addressing, um, I guess, the hidden grammar or real power behind something like abortion, which is again, very revolutionary in its own way. Uh, and how, why ultimately his efforts, well, you could say it failed, uh, he tried to, uh, I guess, uh, take on the model of the civil rights movement, and you get in the article why that w didn't work for the pro-life movement, because the pro-life movement didn't have the support of the oligarchs and, and, and organized Jewry, whereas civil rights movie, movement did, because they had purposely, for decades, revolutionized blacks in America. But I'll let right. you get into the detail of it. Yeah, so the, uh, the civil rights movement was the, the culmination of the Black-Jewish alliance which began with the lynching of Leo Frank and the creation of the ADL uh, and uh, the NAACP, which is a Jewish organization, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, was basically Jewish lawyers trying to turn black sharecroppers into revolutionaries. That, that was the whole point of this operation, uh, and it's continued to this day. So it reached a high point uh, with the civil rights movement, um, Martin Luther King was 
basically a pawn of a Jewish fundraiser. He was a pawn of the money man who paid his bills. And uh, it wasn't uh, to bring in a non-Jew here. It was Nelson Rockefeller paid him $25,000 to go to Chicago. And uh, what, what's, what's the problem with Chicago? Are there segregated water fountains in Chicago? No, no. But there are a lot of Catholic neighborhoods. And the Quakers, uh, to name another non-Jewish group, uh, collaborated with Louis Worth in trying to destroy these um, Catholic, the, the political base of Catholic power in the United States of America. And if any city epitomized it, it was Chicago. And of course, this was peaking in 1960, Catholic political power. Right, with, with the election of John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Mayor Daley played a crucial role in that. And over the next eight years, the Democratic Party turned on Mayor Daley. And <laughs> there was Abraham Ribicoff at the National, the Democratic Convention, <laughs> wagging his finger at Mayor Daley. And Mayor Daley is seen on camera. And if you can read lips, you know what he's saying. <laughs> and it's not fit for polite company, uh, even today. Uh, so they, they basically uh, drove the Catholics out of the Democratic Party. And the man who played a crucial role in that was Theodore Hesburgh, president of Notre Dame University. So when Martin Luther King showed up, he got in trouble immediately, not just with the uh, with the uh, Catholic ethnics. He got in trouble with the black ministers who told him, took out a full page ad in the Chicago newspaper and told him to go back to the south where he came from because he didn't understand Chicago. And he didn't because it wasn't black or black and white neighborhoods. It was ethnic neighborhoods. And if you were um, a German who wanted to move into Cicero, people would throw rocks through your windows if you did that in the 1920s because it was a it was a Czech enclave. And the same thing was true of any other neighborhood. It was a, it was a, in many ways a brilliant strategy because if you restrict uh, the ethnic group, the uh, ethnicity of the neighborhood, you automatically limit uh, the demand. And that this is a surefire way to, uh, to obstruct or prevent gentrification. And over this period of time, what you saw was uh, ethnic enclaves like Southie in Boston being attacked by the Boston Brahmins because they were too close to the center of town and this property is too valuable. So we'll demonize these these poor shanty Irish as racists. Again, this whole idea of identity theft, are you turning the Irish into white guys? And then we'll have this busing arrangement that only affects Boston and only affects Southie. And then we'll get the cameras out when the people react and defend their neighborhoods by throwing rocks at the buses. And so we, this is proof. And so Southie gets ethnically cleansed. Okay, now Hesburgh was engaged in the same type of thing. So when Martin Luther King shows up in um, in Market Park in Chicago, the people who show up to oppose him are Lithuanians, but they're portrayed as white because as soon as you're white, you lose because you're a racist. And so they were throwing rocks at Martin Luther King. You can see pictures of him of getting hit on the head with a rock when he steps out of his car. And uh, they were just portrayed as awful people. And so Hesburgh got a call from Martin Luther King and he went up and there is that iconic photo of him with his arms crossed 
singing We Shall Overcome with Martin Luther King. That is the identity now. <laughs> that is the mission statement and identity icon of Notre Dame University. That's what they consider themselves to this day. It's a tribute. So Notre Dame, it's a monument. They, we have a statue now in the center of South Bend portraying this uh, photo. And it's a monument to social engineering. And it's a monument uh, to uh, Hesburgh's betrayal of the Catholic people of the United States of America. Because as you write, the uh, civil rights narrative or the civil rights movement is the, uh, uh, I guess, de facto uh, civic religion of, uh, of, of, of America now. It is, yes, yes, yeah. it's the civic religion. It, it's interesting because this, this affected the, uh, the, the activism of Joe Scheidler. And, uh, and, he, and you describe him sort of as a devoted Americanist believing in the American system. And he naively thought that the ideas of America uh, uh, applied equally, and we, of course we find out that uh, well, some some uh, protest movements are more equal than others because some protest movements, ironically, are not really protest movements because they have the favor and support of the establishment. Right, and the civil rights movement was certainly that. Mm -hmm. It was a war against the South. Uh, that's that's for sure it, because uh, the Jews never forgave the South. Uh, when you talk about the Freedom Riders, it was Jewish lawyers uh, and. Uh, from the from New York City, going down south on buses and trying to uh, destroy the government, uh, the structure, the social structure of the South. That's 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 what was going on. That's what was going on. And Joe Scheidler, unfortunately, uh, was intellectually crippled by the education he got at the University of Notre Dame. He graduated in 1950, I believe, uh, and. Uh, he uh, was that had had connections. He was going to become a priest, and then he ended up going back to Notre Dame as a teacher, taught journalism there. And over the course of the, the his time, his association with Notre Dame, he picked up two two uh, paradigms. One was the civil rights movement. The other one was the Holocaust. And he, he just he didn't think, you know, he didn't think according to principle. He kind of acted according to paradigms. And so he took a group of uh, students uh, down to um, that famous uh, civil rights gathering, and I forget the the, the uh, forget where it was. Was it this? Was this the one in? Uh, was it Montgomery boycott? Yeah, that's right. That's okay. that's the one. Took us down there and almost got beaten up uh, as a as an outside agitator, but th this. It kind of infected his mind. He, he just had, he thought in these patterns. They're like templates that got imposed on his mind by Notre Dame University. And he, could, he couldn't break with them. And so the crucial moment, the crisis in the right to life movement came with Operation Rescue. Where all of these people who are involved, you know, they're getting disillusioned with the legal process that's going nowhere. It doesn't seem that abortion is going to be struck down. So they're going to get involved in direct action. And the paradigm is the civil rights movement. So if they sat in, sit in is a term from that movement, where they uh, would sit in at lunch counters that were supposed to only serve, serve white people, and uh, they would get beaten up and harassed. Uh, but it would expose the system and uh, the pub bad publicity would help uh, foster things like the Civil Rights Act. That's basically it. So the logic was, well, hell, if they can do that, we can sit in an abortion clinic. And, and before you know it, abortion will be uh, a thing of the past. 
Well, that was naive. Well, yeah, that's like that's like uh, recently. A good example of that would be uh, last summer with all the Black Lives Matter protests, Antifa, Antifa protests, riots being called pe- mostly peaceful, and more or less having the support of, of the media, you know. And then January sixth, where you have a, a, a generally mostly peace, peaceful event, and that's called an insurrection and a riot. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Why didn't they know that? Here's those. Yeah. Those dumb white guys went to, to Washington thinking they had the right to assemble and the right to free speech. And wrong, no, because a category of the mind got imposed on that and changed it from a, a, a demonstration in favor of uh, Donald Trump to an insurrection. Wait a minute. Who, who said it was an insurrection? That's a category of the mind. That's not a category of reality. But the powerful media impose this category of the mind on the nation, and that's that's where it stands now. That's that, that's what happened. So, yeah. you know, so the so so Joe, wait a minute. Let's take a step back here. In his memoir, he he said that he met with Bernard Nathanson many times. Now, Bernard Nathanson was a Jew, uh, an abortion doctor, an abortionist, who was the driving force behind the uh, overthrowing the abortion law of New York State, which then became the uh, decisive factor in Roe versus Wade, which overturned all of those anti-abortion laws throughout the nation. Now, Joe, you know, met with him a number of times, had a drink with him at a bar, uh, but apparently he never read his book because in Aborting America, uh, Bernard Nathanson said that the abortion was a creation of a bunch of crazy Jews from New York City. Or Greenwich Village, I think he said. Well, aren't we supposed to take this seriously? I mean, you know, everybody knows who Bernard Nathanson was, at least the right to lifers do. But yeah, we're not listening to him because the paradigm excludes that. And again, we're back here with the Jewish revolutionary spirit. That paradigm didn't uh, had yet to kick in on the mind. There's a chapter on Bernard Nathanson in the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit where I have exactly that quote there. Okay, that all all we're doing is listening to to the Jew, a Jew who converted first away from abortion and secondly converted to Catholicism, who's telling the truth about how it happened. But Joe Scheidler couldn't process that because he didn't have, let's say, a concept like the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. And his mind had been colonized by the two other paradigms templates the civil rights movement and the holocaust yeah and he thought if he just he could lay out a a moral ethical and logical argument against abortion that those in power would listen apply the law apply (laughs) reason but what we're dealing with is is power and power has its own logic doesn't it so that's right yeah that's right and so uh, and so the crisis for joe joe was very reluctant to get involved in this stuff. So I, I did an article. I did an article on Operation Rescue when it first happened. I was there at the at these rescues. I was there at the rescue in Cherry Hill, where Randy Terry emerged as the leader of this movement. Uh, and uh, I, I, I called up Joe and asked him for a quote. And he said he didn't believe he didn't think it was a good strategy. Charlie Rice said the same thing, the late professor, law professor from Notre Dame University. But yet when the, when the movement built up to a certain critical mass, I think Joe felt that the train was going to leave the station without him. 
And he had to jump in and support the movement that he really didn't believe in, at least at the beginning. So he ended up getting arrested in New York and then he was a full-fledged part of the movement. And it was like, what, what can I tell you? It was like Charlottesville, but 20 years before. It was like handing spears to your followers and telling them to charge the machine gun nest. And that's exactly what happened to the right to life movement. It got, it culminated in Operation Rescue and then Operation Rescue got killed, got destroyed uh, when the government passed the Freedom of Access to Clinics Act. And I think that basically Teddy Kennedy was the main sponsor of that. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Teddy. Thank you for doing that. So uh, it was misconceived. But now when you think in retrospect, you think, I think they probably the opposite side knew something that we didn't know because here you had a way of eliminating all of the most zealous pro-lifers in the country. Get them to volunteer for the suicide mission and they all end up in jail and they think they're all just going to get a slap on the wrist. And no, it turns out that they're in legal battles for years afterward. Now, what if the establishment had done that to the civil rights movement back in 1964 or 63? Yeah, well, there wouldn't be it wouldn't be our state religion. I guarantee you that. And yeah. It, it Wait, there was no RICO law yet. <laughs> they haven't used RICO against Operation Rescue, which well, that, it turns out that that was the irony of this whole thing. Yeah. So when uh, so Joe in, got embroiled in this legal battle with now and it lasted 32 years. <laughs> it went <laughs> on for 32 years. And the culmination of it comes when Joe's lawyer before the Supreme Court uh is asked a question by Madam Justice Ginsburg, the most flaming pro-abortion member of the Supreme Court. And she said, couldn't this have been used against the civil rights movement? And the lawyer said, yes. And at that point, she voted in favor of Joe Scheidler. <laughs> well, kudos to her. <laughs> I mean, it shows you the power of the uh, state religion. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, you invoked the state religion and it, it worked. Mm -hmm. I think it was that Freedom of Access Act which actually uh, passed, uh, said that you couldn't get within, was it 10 feet of someone accessing a clinic? So it, it, it crippled sidewalk counseling or something, which is a violation of First Amendment. Yeah, that that I don't think that, I don't think that's the case. I know that sidewalk counseling went on. After, yeah. After. But as far you know, as far as getting it, you know, I think I think it it, it had to be, it had to, it was interpreted more narrowly. I was here in South Bend when uh, Father Norm Westland showed up with his version of Operation Rescue, and they went into the clinic and just mm -hmm. took it over, you know. And then uh, uh, they he he got you know he he his wife had died in a car crash. He was just going to become a martyr to the to the pro life cause, and that's what he he did. He showed up here. I remember him. When he showed up at the Obama, uh, uh, when Notre Dame gave Obama a, a honorary degree, now, as if as if get, allowing him to speak as the at commencement wasn't bad enough, but they gave him an honorary degree, mm -hmm. and uh, so huge protest movement. And there's Father Westland, and uh, Notre Dame. <laughs> wait a minute, you guys, don't you re don't you remember Father Hesburgh supporting the civil rights movement? Now they're coming. The the uh, security guards, the goons here are going to arrest anybody who comes on the Notre Dame campus. Wait a minute. 
this is a tourist attraction in northern Indiana. Busloads of people come every every week here. And so Father Westland, <laughs> carrying this huge cross, crosses Angela Boulevard and enters Notre Dame campus. And we're kind of watching him as he walks. He's walking and he's singing, you know, he's kind of old. And then he collapses on the sidewalk. And everybody's just standing there. And I'm thinking, did he just die? And then suddenly he starts singing again and everybody's really <laughs> and, and carries the cross. He got arrested too. And so there, the, this group became name, known as the Notre Dame 88. And no, Notre Dame simply would not let them go. They, they subjected them to all sorts of legal harassment in spite of the fact that they were a textbook example of what Father Hesburgh supported in Chicago. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. A textbook example of civil disobedience, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't even civil disobedience. It was basically education, which is certainly licit. I tried to explain to these people when they wrote the article to the Operation Rescue Crowd, talking to moral theologians, there is no moral theological concept known as civil disobedience. It was created by Henry David Thoreau uh, to justify uh, opposition to uh, slavery, the abolition movement. Okay, there is either education on the one hand or insurrection on the other. So if the situation is bad enough, you don't have to be nonviolent. You can engage in physical force. You can pick up weapons and you can overthrow the government. You, you know, but you have to do that according to the principles of the just war theory, mm -hmm. uh, one of which is likelihood of success. And you have to always have in mind the fact that you, the new regime may be worse than the one you're going to overthrow. But it's, it's legitimate. It's possible, according to Catholic Thomistic theology. OK, this this, this middle ground is a, a, a category of the mind that doesn't exist in reality. And those pro-lifers had to learn that the hard way by ending up in legal jeopardy. People who, you know, I know a guy in Indiana who became, uh, uh, went to law school after following Randy Terry into the machine gun nest, waving his spear and uh, can't, you know, graduate from law school, can't get admitted to the bar in Indiana because he's been convicted of a felony. And they're not going to make exceptions for you, buddy. Mm -hmm. Not for this, not for this, not for this. Yeah, I, I met uh, Randall Terry years ago. Uh, I guess it was in the 90s. And he just struck me as someone, you know, I, mean, I guess dedicated, but also kind of uh, uh, concerned about publicity, perhaps, and a little well, unhinged. And so well, he didn't strike me as an effective leader. Yeah, well, uh, in his memoir, Joe uh, felt that he had been betrayed by Randy Terry because Randy Terry suddenly bailed out of the, the now case. How do you do that? How did you how did you get excused from the now case, the Scheidler versus now? And then after he got out, the now lawyers kept us kept uh, mixing him up with uh, with Joe Scheidler, accusing Joe of things that Randy did. Uh, and uh, Joe, the annoyance comes through in, in Joe's memoir. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's an early case. I don't know if the term existed yet, but it's lawfare where they have endless amount of money uh, to uh, spend on litigation. It's also a standard tactic of the FBI. Where basically they get one guy uh, to turn on the other guys in this alleged conspiracy, you know, and he gets uh, it's it, what that's what they did with the uh, with the Black Panthers in Chicago. Yeah, 
they just did a movie about it. Bobby Neal was going to go to prison. And the alternative was you can become a double agent working for us and in infiltrating the Black Panthers in Chicago. Yeah. Once you have some sort of uh, 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 legal or, or leverage, like a, a, a um, perceived crime, and you know, obviously a federal prosecutor, or the feds can can uh, spin a narrative or, or create a crime out of anything. And once they have that over leverage, they can get you to turn. That's what they do with a lot, you know. Do it a lot. It's yeah. happened. It just happened with that alleged uh, plot to capture, kidnap Governor Whitmer of Michigan and take her out to a boat in the middle of Lake Michigan. Now, <laughs> you believe that, you know, I, I can sell you a bridge. To, this is this is the sequel to the story of the Hootery, a yes. little known story in which uh, six guys from a trailer park with one twenty-two rifle and three bullets were going to overthrow the government of the United States of America. Well, they could do this now because they had real weapons, uh, but it turns out that the only guy who knew how to use real weapons was an FBI agent who had infiltrated this whole operation, this ludicrous little operation. And as soon as it went to court, it was thrown out uh, as entrapment. Within minutes, it just nothing. Nothing came of it because the, the FBI is notorious for doing this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they have a stable of uh, informants. You know, they can go in and, and stir up a, a conspiracy, pay people. He's given cash, and you can always find some people. You get them talking either uh, on a virtual community or you know around a campfire, and uh, then you, then you then you can um, you know call in the, the troops to arrest them and reap the. Uh, you know yeah. the, the media, uh, the media coverage, and the budgetary awards that, that flow from that, and it's it's yeah. an old, it's an old tactic, and it gets dirty because often you don't know which group is actually an asset of the FBI or whatever, another intelligence agency or, or law enforcement agency, and they themselves will control these assets, let them commit crimes. This is also true with the drug war, with uh, you know with conf you know with confidential informants, where drug uh, drug trade were allowed to flourish or go along as they build a case and all types of crimes are committed, Whitey Bulger in Boston's great case of that with the FBI, you know? Yeah. Or fast and furious. Yeah. Fast. Yeah. That's a great, yeah. They, they sent all, they shipped all those guns to drug dealers down in Mexico. Yep. Yep. And it's, um, so, but if the, the, this, yeah, the Joe Schaller article was interesting because it's good to show just uh, sort of a, the naivete and sort of a misapprehension of, of, of many American activists, Americans, uh, particularly on the right, about the true nature of the American system, that you just simply can't appeal to um, a common political values or, 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 you know, programmatically, whereas we all have free speech and, hey, the civil disobedient thing worked in the 60s, uh, so it'll work now. The only problem right. is it's, it's they don't... It's magic thinking. Yeah. It's magic thinking. Yeah. So if you could... Okay, now let's assume... Let's take Joe aside now. He's gone to his eternal reward. But uh, if I could have taken him aside in the early 80s and say, or some point and say, look, Joe, uh, abortion is a Jewish operation. Werner Nathanson said that in his book. The Civil rights movement is a Jewish operation. It was funded by Stanley, whatever his name is, you know. Levinson, and, yeah. Uh, Levinson, right. Um, now, do you seriously think that you're going to be able to drive out uh, 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 Satan with Beelzebub here? It's not going to work. I tell you right now. Now, that's why it's important to have a category like the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, yeah. because it will prevent you from a, su a suicide mission, 
from becoming pro-life kamikazes here, charging the machine gun nest and waving your spear. You should be smart enough to know that it's not going to work. And you would have saved a lot of people a lot of unnecessary suffering. And in the end, it didn't, it didn't accomplish what you wanted either. Yeah, abortion is a sacrament uh, now. It's part of the what we call the modern world. It, it's 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 the the uh, a necessary uh, thing in how the modern world views things. Good example is sexual liberation or sexual freedom. I think the Supreme Court. I think Senator O'Connor even said this that uh, abortion has to be there to backstop contraception because contraception fails, yeah. and contraception is there so people can have sexual freedom. And, you know, it goes from the Griswold decision. You talk about that and how uh, I did the right to contraception is supposed to be a privacy issue. But uh, you covered this in the in the Kroll book, John Kroll, Kroll where is uh, it wasn't so much that people couldn't get contraceptions. They needed to have these laws rescinded so government could promote it. So it gets in the right. wider depopulation social engineering scheme of this modern world, which is permeated with the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it would have saved a lot of people a lot of trouble. But this is this is the, the, the Achilles heel of activism. And Joe considered himself an activist. That was part of the problem. You know, so what is an activist? It's like I met Joe, you know, I mean, early when I was just starting out in the magazine and I made the mistake of being the earnest young editor and saying it's going to be an Catholic, intellectual Catholic magazine. And he just kind of burst out laughing at that point. <laughs> Never told me why, but <laughs> it was kind of deflating for have him to do this because he was a well-known figure at that point. But, you know, maybe you could have benefited from some some intellectual rigor here. Maybe the whole movement could have benefited from it instead of this kind of mindless activism where, you know, Joe gets swept up into the emotion of the moment. He steps over the line, even though he doesn't really believe in it. And then suddenly he's part of an operation that's doomed. Yeah, this, so there's a trivium here. It's it's grammar, logic, rhetoric, I guess. And if you don't have the proper grammar, you're not going to have the proper logic and nor the, or the rhetoric. And you, people get thrown off, and they have they don't understand these events. And you talked about it in in, in all your books how understanding these events that you you yourself, all of us are kind of uh, guinea pigs, or we're we're we're, we're being you know driven by the current of history. But who's driving the current? And you start to step back, and after so many years, you can reflect upon these things. And it's one of the, I guess one of the tragedies of, of the human condition is that you don't understand events until 20 years later. Then it's too That's late. Right. <laughs> That's right. It's too late. But the, 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 the church never understands. Still doesn't come to grips with this. Mm -hmm. If you ask the church, uh, like a bishop, let's say uh, Cardinal Supich of Chicago. Mm -hmm. If you asked him about the destruction of all those parishes, he'd probably blame the Catholics. Now, I don't I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I mean, this is not uncommon for Catholics to blame fellow Catholics as racist because they were ethnically cleansed from their parishes. This is a common perception and it, it permeates Catholic thought. And as a result, the church is completely crippled in dealing with phenomena like this. Well, now and, the church today thinks racism is is worse or uh, as bad or worse than abortion. In fact, it's more concerned with racism than it is with abortion. At least what I can gather from the, you know, from the church leaders, you know, from their rhetoric, uh, you know. From the Jesuits. Yeah. Uh, and even yeah. like you talk about Jenkins and Hesburgh who had a distaste for the pro-life movement. 
Yes. They, they said disparaging things about it, you know, because they wanted the accolades of the oligarchs, which Hesper got, you know. Yeah, was, and Jenkins, Jenkins uh, uh, has attended the Right to Life March in Washington. So he's a little bit different in this regard mm -hmm. than Hesper. And he also did not get the accolades of the oligarchs. And uh, because it, Notre Dame just doesn't have the clout that it used to have. And that's largely because of the Obama thing. So I don't know yeah. if you know this, but Joe Biden was invited to speak at the commencement uh, exercises this weekend. And Joe Biden turned Notre Dame down. Well, he probably couldn't complete the speech <laughs> if he wanted to. <laughs> have to do it remotely with a mask on. <laughs> certainly. Can CG. he do it from his basement? For, uh, can he do a Zoom conference from his basement? Well, listen, the guy ran a, a victorious presidential campaign from his basement, right? So why not? So That's right. They could have C right. CGI Joe show up to do it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's. Uh, yeah, I think that Joe Biden had nothing to gain, and I think Notre Dame had really nothing left to lose because they lost their reputation with the Obama debacle. Well, so much for making a pact with the devil, right? You always come up short. Yeah. So don't do it. You know. So um, yeah, I mean, and you also talk about like in, in like Catholics not understanding psychological warfare, particularly the church leaders, the hierarchy. Um, when you, I think, was it um, you? Did you directly ask John Cardinal Kroll about what happened in Philadelphia and Most Blessed Sacrament Parish? And his response was, you can't tell people wh where, where they can live, something like yeah, that? Yeah, that's exactly what I did say that, exactly yeah. that. He lost the most vibrant parish in, the, in Philadelphia, uh, which was also the greatest source of vocations in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And all he could say was, you can't tell people where to where to live. Completely missed the boat. Yeah. On. Yeah. And that's yeah, again, not understanding uh, you know, psychological warfare. And it's a, yeah, what's amazing is that those that wage it such a um they have such a, a sophisticated understanding of, of uh human psychology. You know, and you know, just the whole idea of um sexual revolution uh as you know, as as uh, political warfare, as as and how, again, how everyone has embraced the Jewish ideas uh, attitude towards abortion because they've embraced the sexual revolution. And now, because they can't be sexually free if they don't have the, um, the outlet of, of, of killing the un their unborn children or using contraceptives. You know? That's right. That's right. So we, we've all become Jews. Uh, this is what Yuri Sleskind said at the beginning of his book, mm -hmm. The Jewish Century, that basically we all think like Jews now. And that's that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is we, we can't we simply cannot ha sustain our own narrative because we don't ha understand our own history. Mm -hmm. Still don't understand. That was a, I think that was a turning point when I went to Kroll and handed him the manuscript. You know, uh, we could have had a turning point then because if Kroll was still influential, he was on his way out. He was non compass mentis a lot of the time, but if he had gotten behind this book and used it as a teaching moment for the country's bishops to say, we real, there are things in this book that we really need to learn, like the, uh, the ethnic cleansing of parishes, like the, the, the destruction of the Legion of Decency, all of these type of things. We really need to understand the grammar of social engineering. We could have had a dialogue on that and it would have 
really increased consciousness among the Catholic population of this country. But instead, he turned on me. His secretary had turned him against me, and then he tried to sue me. He threatened to sue me and going to destroy me and so on and so forth. Nothing ever came of it. He died a few months after the threat. Uh, uh, but the moment, the moment passed. And on top of that, he closed the archives. Wait a minute. If what I said was false, open the archives and prove me wrong. Yeah, yeah. And you, I guess you, uh, that was William Ball who called? Yeah. yeah Bill the, Ball called me up. Uh, so I'm waiting uh, for the axe to hit the back of my neck because this archdiocese has hired the most prestigious law firm in Philadelphia to sue me. So my, you know, my lawyer calls up his lawyer and says, what's the basis of the suit? And his lawyer says, there is no basis. My client's going to ruin your client financially. So I'm waiting to, for this. I scheduled a press conference in the middle of the Schuylkill Expressway to announce the book. And if, if I went through with that, Kroll was going to pull the trigger and sue me. And waiting here uh, with the feeling of impending doom, the phone rings and it's Bill Ball, who is the real hero of the Kroll biography, the uh, lawyer for the Pennsylvania Catholic Conference. And he said to me, uh, it's, it's a great book, Mike. Everything you said is true. No one has told this story. This is great, you know, so on. I said, well, thanks, Bill. I'm glad you liked it. Now, let me tell you my story here. Let me tell you what's going to happen to me. And I told him the story, you know, and he said, I'm going to make a phone call. And that's the last I ever heard from Bill Ball. He died. And then shortly thereafter, uh, Kroll died. So I suspect he called up Kroll and he says, if push comes to shove, I will testify on Mike Jones's behalf in any court proceedings. Now, to have the head of the Pennsylvania Catholic Conference testify against John Cardinal Kroll, that the optics are not good here. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to work. And I think they immediately uh, caved in because nothing ever happened. Nothing ever happened. I, I called their bluff and they, they nothing happened. But what did happen was the teaching moment passed and it still hasn't happened. Well, the political effect of that is that because of, of the density of Catholic neighborhoods, you could have a figure like William Ball or Martin Mullen in Pennsylvania holding, uh, you know, holding the pass against in the culture war against the forces, you know, that, right. that became triumphant because of the breakup, largely because of the breakup of these neighborhoods. Um, I, I recall a few uh, last year I was at, at church and Orthodox, very conservative church, uh, uh, traditional church. And I think the topic was abortion, and the, the priest, who's you know very traditional, uh, was talking about the moral issue of abortion, and again equated to the civil rights movement. And and he was talking about some Catholics who are pro-choice, and how this was you know uh, you know in uh, in uh, opposition to church teachings. Uh, they don't speak as Catholics because of this. They're not proper Catholics because of this. And he equated it to, to those Catholics who opposed integration in the 1960s. And I immediately thought of your book. <laughs> this priest isn't getting the hidden grammar of this. How the, no. the, to the extent that that his parish is is eroding, or he's watching the culture go insane around him, is largely a function of the oligarchs, uh, the Jewish oligarchs, utilizing something like civil rights as a weapon to break up the ethnic neighborhood, using integration to create suburbia, to create the wasteland that is modern America today. Again, it's that hidden grammar, the complexity which you don't get unless you read these books. I mean, it's something I wouldn't under the grammar I wouldn't have had 10 years ago. 
I, I couldn't even make that argument 10 years because I didn't know about it. I, you know, I was like maybe maybe like Cardinal Crow. I didn't know. Don't feel bad. Nobody yeah. knew about it. Yeah. I mean, I was I got into the archives of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, so nobody told that story before mm -hmm. I got access to those archives. You know, I was the first guy to talk about the meeting between Hesburgh and John D. Rockefeller and Pope Paul VI. I got that from the Rockefeller archives. Yeah. That was the hidden story of what happened at Notre Dame. You know, so, you know, it's been it's been I remember being being in Cincinnati and uh, I'm meeting telling this story to the head of the history department. <laughs> and he says to me, well, if that were true, someone important might have said it. <laughs> was, that, was, that, was that Xavier? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I repeat that story a lot. That's a, that's such a great <laughs> I, said, well, I felt like saying, I felt like saying, you mean I'm not important? Yes. I mean, my wife thinks I'm important. <laughs> Someone important would tell me. Why didn't Walter Cronkite tell me? <laughs> <laughs> and he's a history professor, right? So he's a history. So can you can imagine? Well, this is pathetic. Or the or the review in the Catholic the review of uh, um, slaughter, slaughter of cities. The Catholic Historical Society, this lady from Catholic U just attacks me ferociously saying it's a conspiracy theory. And she doesn't mention one name that I mentioned in that book. Mm -hmm. why, why, why didn't you mention Louis Worth? Why didn't you mention the fact that I went to the archives of the University of Chicago and read his papers? Why are you saying that it's a conspiracy? Well, you're there to defend the narrative. You're there to defend the oligarchic narrative. That's your job as a professor at Catholic University. Mm -hmm. That's why Catholics are stupid, because they go to universities like this to get educated, and they get brainwashed, like Joe Scheidler. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it, it is interesting that one way you can look at this is sort of a real estate acquisition scam, where uh, you can, um, again, you can... Uh, uh, look at these neighborhoods and you can for 10, 15, 20 years ruin them uh, with drugs and crime and then gentrify it and make a lot of money on it. <laughs> right. You know, that's, that's yeah. Southie. That's also uh, Grace Ferry in Philadelphia, which is right next to yeah. University of Pennsylvania. And also like in Chicago, too, like uh, near the near the uh, the uh, uh, the uh, lake there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where they had their Robert Taylor homes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, I mean, it's all—it's a lot of it's just social engineering. It's just the, you know, the, you, you talk about migration. You mentioned about, you know, the Great Migration North, in the Chicago. I guess uh, Philadelphia—they were from North Carolina and Georgia, but they were there to break up these neighborhoods. And if you look at the cities now, and also the the country's demographics, um, this is the type of games they play with with humanity. And, yeah, you know. and so the, the so the Jewish uh, Black Jewish Alliance breaks up in '67. But yet it comes back to life with uh, Ferguson and George Soros. Mm -hmm. And now you have all these George Soros prosecutors in places like Philadelphia, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. a Jewish money, uh, making sure that black criminals will not be prosecuted. And it's not just Philadelphia. It's Kim Fox in Chicago. It's Kim Gardner in, in uh, St. Louis. Uh, on and on. And again, you're not allowed to talk about that. The classic example being Newt Gingrich. <laughs> on Fox News, yeah. he says, ha, George Soros, he says. And the lady, the, the info babe, tells him, oh, you're not allowed to mention that. <laughs> Newt <laughs> didn't get the memo. He he didn't use the term verboten. 
That's verboten, yeah, isn't it? Is, I didn't know this was verboten. <laughs> yeah. Did you hear the um, I just saw, uh, leak report shows that the Pentagon Counting Extremism Working Group is considering a partnership with the ADL and the Southern Poverty Law Center? Are <laughs> you kidding me? So tell, tell them to give a call to the FBI. Okay, the FBI has already abandoned any collaboration with the Southern Poverty Law Center. Mm-hmm. Even a group like the FBI knows that they're being wasting their time with fall, basically the SPLC coming in and saying to the FBI, I'll hold your coat while you beat up people I don't like. What are they, crazy? <laughs> so, what is this? Well, this is how they're, they're purging the military. This sort of this, I guess this... Uh... March through the institutions has, has gotten all the way atop of the military brass. You, did you see the latest recruiting ad for the U.S. Army? About the 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 the, uh, the cartoon the that has two mommies. Yeah, did you see that? I did see that. I was ready to enlist when I saw that. <laughs> now, I was I mean, going to enlist in the in the Iranian. <laughs> no, I'm <just> <laughs> so I mean, this is what they're doing with these institutions. They've completely they've always been somewhat politicized. Now, I mean, they're they're having the U.S. Army promote things like LGBTQ rights and gay marriage and like, what are they thinking? But again, uh, uh, just like the, the CIA's recruitment ad, you know, with the cisgender woman. Right. Yeah. They're, <laughs> Let t- they're thinking, I mean, basically, this is what John B. Watson said. The Army is always a form of social engineering. Yeah. So they're te- but it also has to win battles, you know, and you're not going to this is not a winning strategy for winning battles to get all these self-absorbed people in into the military. It's going to be it, it will prove uh, disastrous. But I suppose that's part of the cunning of reason. Yeah. Yeah. As well here. This is God's way of uh, putting an end to the American empire. Yeah. The uh, army won't be there to, uh, you know, to have 600 bases around the world or, you know, to surround Russia or something. And so how this plays out. Well, we're well past an hour and I know that's usually your limit. So I want to thank you for spending so much time. It's always a pleasure, Tim. Always a pleasure to talk to you. The, of course, the article, uh, of course, the article, uh, articles rather is free speech under assaulted gab and pro-life requiem at the, uh, on the, um, in the, rather the May edition of culture wars. And of course the book, uh, the books uh, Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality, um, can be purchased at the Culture's website, along with the second edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. It's being mailed out now, right? So, Yes, we got copies. There's three volumes in a box, uh, 600 pages of new material. It's really a powerful piece of uh, writing, and it can hold doors open uh, on, in drafty corridors. And, uh, <laughs> yes. And, it's good for pressing flowers as well. That's tr- yes, true. That's right. It's so, available at culturewars.com and uh, fidelitypress.org. Yeah, it comes in, in a bundle, in a, in a case, so you can put it up in your it's shelf. And three volumes key. in a box, yes. Great. Well, thank you so much. I'll let you go. Uh, thank you, Tim. Good okay. night, then. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Okay.